All right, come back over. It's time for us to get started with our teaching. Come over, grab a Bible if you don't have one. They are available on the coffee bar. If you if you want to move in closer, that would be great with me and maybe with you as well. Without the kids, there's a few more spaces up here. Looking at you, Jesslyn, right, right at you. Michael, can you put it on that first slide? I want to share just a couple of things. These are all in the bulletin, but one of these I'm I'm just as you can imagine, really, really excited about. My daughter, Annie, plans to be baptized this evening, and it's going to be at David and Suzette Hall's pool. So it's on Fairmeadow. The address is in the bulletin. If you're available, we'd love to have you there to come celebrate. And then after the baptism, we'll walk down the street to Don and Denise Nicholson's house, still on Fairmeadow. It's like 100 yards away. And we'll have pizza and dessert, and it'll just be kind of a time of celebration and fellowship. So if you're here and you're hearing this, you're invited, and it'll just be a chance to celebrate what God is doing in Annie's life, and we'll talk more about that tonight. Uh, we've got some other things happening, too, um, <laughs> that I'm sure are really important. God's going to work through those, too. Uh, can I share what they are? Uh, this, this week, um, by the way, we have um, Jeff and Beth Frizzell. They are um, partners at our sending church, Highland. Jeff serves as a shepherd for the Highland Church. It's an honor to have you here today. Um, and this week is Highland Church Christ VBS. And um, meal starts, I think, about 5.30, and then VBS really starts at 6.30, and then pickup is at 8. There's a little information in the bulletin, but the most important piece there is the website, if you want to register them. And that is, I think, three days or four days this week. Um, okay, thank you. Um, and then... I also want to invite you to something happening June 14th here at the Gathering Place with our New Direction Recovery Ministry. Um, Jason and Rose, can you guys, Rose, raise your hand. Um, they lead a, it meets every, every week here, a recovery ministry for people. And it's also kind of support for, for family members. And this week is a little different. It's kind of like a, a taste and see, meet, meet the game. And it's a, it's a game night. It's, it's low-key. You know, it's, it's not going to circle up and share some of the struggles that you're going through like it would normally be. But it, it's a, just a primer to get to know some of the people and to have some fun together. Um, families are welcome. Kids are welcome. So if, if you want to participate in that, that's coming up this week. Rose, anything else you want to say on that? Okay. Rose just reminded me, child care is provided as part of that if you want to bring up your kids. Okay. All right, next slide, Michael. Um, I'm going to kind of transition into a teaching on communing with God, and it would be a little awkward. Ashley's here. Ashley, is, it's also Ashley's pool. So, <laughs> good to see you. Um, we're going to be reflecting on communion with God, but it would be odd to reflect on communion with God with, without communion with God. Now, that's not to say we haven't been in his presence, and his presence hasn't been in us as we've sang and as we've prayed and as we shared the table, um, certainly. But can we just take uh, a minute or two just of silence? And if you want to close your eyes and if you want to kind of focus on your breathing as you enter into that, and then if you want to fill him with praises for what he's doing, if you want to just kind of sit quietly and listen, there's just, just take a couple of minutes, okay? And then, and then I'll stand back up and we'll begin our teaching. Glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, world without end. Amen. If you've got a Bible, open it up. Coffeehouse Bibles, it's page 836. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. I think for a lot of us, that may have been the first kind of silent two minutes where you've been communing with God in a little while. Um, not for everybody. But there's, there's a weird reality in my own journey with Jesus that often involves this, just quenching the Spirit. This language comes from the Apostle Paul. Paul says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. That's the NIV language. Don't quench the Spirit. Instead, he says, you should pray without ceasing. It's this abiding reality that God is here, God is near. And yet, what I've discovered in my own journey with Jesus is that very often, I've basically defaulted into a lifestyle of quenching the Spirit. Some of this was because of, for lack of a better term, like theology, to kind of box out, or really box in, what God might be doing and how I could connect with Him. I had a very strong sense that Sunday worship was a place where you could connect with God. But within that, there was only a couple of ways to connect with God. And we, we've done them all. It was almost a checklist for me at times. And I'm not writing that story for you. That may not have been your experience. But for me, if I thought of what it would be like to commune with God, to commune with God, it only happened at communion. <laughs> it, it involved the bread and the cup and passing the trays. And it I was remembering what Jesus did at his death. All, all of these are good things. But I had so limited, boxed in my, my relationship with God. Yes, I could pray. Yes, I could do some of these things outside. But functionally, that didn't happen. But then, kind of as the Lord was undoing that box, outside of just a Sunday gathering, and he started inviting me to enjoy his presence more frequently, more often, I found that there was something else that that I was defaulting to in terms of quenching the spirit. It was my, my pace of life. It, it showed up in a lot of forms, kind of things to get done, busyness, hurry. There's a um, kind of spiritual disciplines guru type named Richard Foster. Richard Foster was surveying spiritual disciplines literature going back 100, 200 years in, in our country. And he says there's almost nobody writing about this. And so he writes one of the most important books in the 1970s called A Celebration of Discipline. And one thing he says, though, he says in contemporary society, our adversary, the devil, he majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. This, is, this has been true for me. This has actually been our way into a lot of this series is we've been reflecting on what it would look like to live out a rhythm of life with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to, to be with him and to do what he did in order to become like him. So much of what gets in the way is just this muchness and manyness, the pace of my life. Our adversary rests satisfied as long as we are satisfied with restlessness. There was another kind of big name. You've heard of John Piper, big time Calvinist preacher. He wrote a book on fasting. He had a really insightful comment on this idea. He says, the greatest adversary of love for God is not his enemies, it's his gifts. 
the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. We fill it up. Who's hungry for God? There's this deadening effect that can kind of happen in this pace, this busyness, this hurry, this fullness. It's not a fullness, though. It's a deception. One more. Dallas Willard. He's kind of in the same vein. He wrote a really important book called Spirit of the Disciplines. Willard says this. He says, if the places in our blood cells designed to carry oxygen are occupied by carbon monoxide, we die for lack of oxygen. Does that make sense? If the places in our souls that are to be indwelt by God in his service are occupied by food and sex and society, we die for languish, for lack of God and right relation to his creatures. All right. What I think sometimes this creates um, is a almost like a white noise effect. This is something I really want to explore more in depth later on, but I think you probably experienced something of it, even as we just took two minutes to enter in to become aware of God's presence. In two minutes of silence, it can almost take that long to even start to realize where your brain is. White noise. This is something that was really introduced to me when we had kids. Um, it was like we needed some sound to kind of mask everything else going on in the house so that baby can sleep. But our kind of inner spiritual life end up having that same effect. There's so much noise and sound and activity that it ends up masking things that are actually happening in our, at a soul level within, within our hearts and within our spirits. There's, there's just so much activity that we very rarely slow down to actually discern what God might be doing in us or speaking to us or calling us into. It masks the things that have happened to us. It, it masks the, the wounds that we're carrying. And sometimes this is far more comfortable. I get it. Just like the baby who sleeps much better when there's white noise on, sometimes we, we cope much better with this noise of activity. But I think God actually wants to do something with those things that are being masked by the busyness of our lives. And so today we have an invitation. It's an invitation to commune with God. And it's an invitation that comes from Jesus himself. I'm going to start with this language of, of communion. Um, that is dictionary.com the best place to go for spiritual definitions? I don't know. But that's where we're going. So dictionary.com, it says that if you just look up the, this idea of communing, it says converse or talk together, usually with profound intensity or intimacy. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a back and forth. It's communication. It's a being with. Go ahead, Michael. Inter, it's an interchange of thoughts or feelings. It's an intimate communication. Now, intimate may not be a word that you normally describe your relationship with God, but that is, I think, what we are made for. That is what we are made for. We are made for communion. We, we actually sang this language from one of these ancient African theologians named St. Augustine. He says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is the story of Scripture beginning at the Genesis 1 and 2, that we are made to be with God and, and to live in communion and in unity with him. But, of course, this isn't the story as it plays out. God... He's constantly, as Jermaine reminded us at the table, he's constantly coming down and trying to reconcile us to bridge the gap that we have created through our choices and through our lifestyles and through the white noise around us. He's constantly stepping down to reconcile us back to himself. And so 
in the face of separation, in the face of betrayal, he keeps coming down. It's the story of the garden. It's the story of the tabernacle. It's the story of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the story of the temple. But most importantly, it's the story of Jesus who came and he dwelt among us and became God with us. And then when Jesus ascends, he pours out his spirit and he fills us up in a brand new way. That's, that's the story that we're going to discover today. We're going to look at this invitation of Jesus that's there in Matthew chapter 11. This language from the message is, is really beautiful. We're going to start with it, and then we're going to get into the text. I think it comes from the NIV on the screen. Eugene Peterson, he says, this is his paraphrase. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is the invitation. Come to me. Go ahead, Michael. All you who are weary and burdened. And then he says, and I will give you rest. This sounds almost too good to be true. For weary, burdened people like me, who are trying to fill up the fullness of life through activity, what would it look like instead to slow down, to come to Jesus, and to experience his goodness in a brand new way? I hope this can be a moment in your life where to see change from hurry into holy. All right, let's focus in on this language, though, that Jesus invites us to in verse 29. He says, I want you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Yoke is a really weird word for city dwellers, right? We, yoke. There's a couple of ways to understand what a yoke is. There's the, the thing itself. We'll look at it in just a second. But there's also the biblical background of the people he's talking to. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people who live in Israel, and they know what a yoke is. It's something they use in the field. They're familiar with what a yoke is, but more importantly, they're familiar with how a yoke feels. In the story of the Exodus, the Exodus is a book about God's people in slavery in Egypt. And it says that this slavery, he calls it over and over in Exodus 6, the yoke of the Egyptians. You see, it's, it's a bondage. It, it's put on your shoulders where you're serving the oppressor. It's a yoke that is weighing down. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says, if you don't keep my commandments, I'm going to send you away into exile. And he says, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck. It's the yoke of oppression. But Israel also talked about the yoke as their own law. Now, most of the time, it, it was the yoke of oppression, like exile and foreign power and being subject to people like Babylon. But it was also their own law felt like a yoke to them. That was uh, one of the exercises we've done with Andy over the last month. It's a chapter night we've been reading through Acts and kind of processing what God was doing to his people, how he called them to himself, and what baptism looks like. But there's this, this scene in Acts 15 where the, the Christians are trying to figure out, how do, we, how do we interact with the old law? Do we have to practice circumcision and food laws and feast days? And what the council there, all these men and women of discipleship to Jesus, they come to, they say, we cannot put a yoke, we cannot put the same yoke on these new Gentiles who are trying to come into faith. We can't put the yoke on them because we couldn't carry it ourselves. 
the yoke of the law. It's interesting. It's inter how, how could this be a yoke, this gift of God? I think there's a couple of ways that this yoke shows up. One of the ways is really just how specific and local their relationship with God had to be. I, I read the Psalms every morning. That's, that's part of my communion with God. My favorite Psalm, at least for the last year, has been Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is, is beautiful. Um, it's been incredibly meaningful to me. But there, there's, this some, there's something in it that leaves you just lacking and wanting more. Verse 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Doesn't that sound awesome? The Old Testament is filled with psalms where people are like, earnestly I seek for you. Oh God, I want to be with you. Like, like a, a dry soul in a weary desert, I want to be with you. But then do you know where they always go next? I've got to get back to the temple. I'm, I want to be in the sanctuary. I want to be in your house. Because part of what it meant to live under the law was that, for one, you had to be a specific ethnic group. One ethnic group. One people. One people in one place. If you want to connect with God, you have to be one people in one place. And the place is the temple. If you want to know God, you've got to get here. And then one people, one place, and then you need a priest. So you have to make this offering. And the offering has this way of reconciling and atoning for your sins so that you can actually step into the presence of God. And so all of this is this burden that, that people are constantly carrying. So you have to come in from wherever it is you live. And you have to come in with a sacrifice to go to the priest, to go to the place, because you're part of the people. And this was a wearying thing. Because this... This weight of the law meant that nobody was living in perfection. And so if you wanted to experience the goodness of God, really all you had was your memory of that day that you did it back when you were a kid or that day when you, you traveled last year. It, it was a weight. It was a yoke. They were yearning for God in beautiful ways. And I'm so grateful that I get to read the Psalms through the lens of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit, where we know that language of house of God is that he says, I'm making you into a house. That's the word oikos in Greek. I'm making you into the house of God. I'm building you up to be a, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. You are now the house of God. That's a different thing than the people he's talking to who are saying, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. For them, there's a yoke, and it's a yoke of distance. It's a yoke of separation. It's a, it's a yoke of bondage. But one day, the prophets kept reminding God's people that God would set them free from the yoke. He's going to start smashing yokes. That's what he tells Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He says, I want you to start smashing yokes. Set people free. God's a liberating God. Um, by the way, I'm really excited to talk to some about that next week. Um, next week is Father's Day, but it's also Juneteenth. Um, so God's a liberating God. He's going to break every yoke, Isaiah 58, Jeremiah 30. I will break the yoke off their necks and tear off their bonds and no longer will anybody enslave them. God, he, he's doing something to break yoke. So why is Jesus saying, Jesus isn't, did you notice? He's not saying, I'm going to break your yoke. You're, you can live free. Instead, he says, I'm replacing your yoke. The invitation of Jesus, it's, it's amazing, but it's not to live a yokeless life. It, it's still to put yourself under a king, although not a foreign oppressive king. Instead, it's, it's King Jesus. If he's supposed to break another yoke, why is he promising this yoke? The yoke of Jesus somehow is good. All right, go to this picture, Michael. Do um, you see the yoke? 
the primary purpose of a yoke is to link two creatures together. Right? Does that make sense? So it's, it's so that in cadence and in rhythm, they can walk together. Because by walking together, it, the load that's on each one is not even half as much. Um, a lot of times I'll do projects with my father-in-law, and we'll kind of get in over our heads. And sometimes it's just essential to have another set of hands. But there are some jobs when you have another set of hands, it's not even twice as easy. It's like four times as easy. Just It's like I, I need a third or a fourth hand just to do this thing. The yoke is a way of simplifying, of reducing the load. It's of having you walk together. But most importantly, it's a way of linking you with someone or something. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Because if you're linked to me, my burden is light and easy. He says, let's, let's go on. I'll come back to the yoke in just a second. He said, I want you to learn from me. Learn. This is the language of discipleship. In English, it's, it's kind of skewed. This is the same word. It's mathete. It's disciple under me. He, he's a rabbi inviting people to be his students, to be his learners. And what a rabbi would do for a disciple or for a learner or an apprentice, it, it's like a, an electrician. You, you have to just be with them. And then you have to do what they do. And if you're with them and do what they do, over time, you become like them, and then you become, this is one of the weird ways, discipleship to Jesus. Nobody actually ever graduates to rabbi. <laughs> you're, just, you're always forever with each other in discipleship to Jesus. But yes, you actually are becoming like him as you do it. Learn from me. He says, I want you to walk in rhythm with me. Do what I do. Come. So what does Jesus do? He, he's actually talking to people. It's not just like a generic invitation. He's, he's talking to the disciples saying, I want to come with me. I'm heading somewhere. Let's walk. Let's talk. There's a couple of rhythms, especially as it pertains to communion with God that we see here. Um, Willard in his Spirit of the Disciplines, he says, the secret of the easy yoke is simple, actually. It, it feels hard. It feels like it's the striving for, for perfection. Jesus raises the bar in the Sermon on the Mount, but then he says, it's simple. It's the intelligent, informed, unyielding resolve to live as Jesus lived in all aspects of his life, not just in the moment of specific choice or action. In other words, the WWJD bracelet doesn't do it unless you wake up in the morning saying, what would Jesus do? It's the preparation in times of silence and solitude that prepare you later on. Um, there was a, a basketball player named Gordon Hayward. Have you ever heard of Gordon Hayward? It's like, how do you find the one white basketball player? I'm, it was a story about him back when he played for the Utah Jazz. And Gordon Hayward, he went to his trainers and said, I want to be an all-star. I want to be an all-star. And they're like, well, that's not just something you decide to do, right? You, it takes discipline to become what you want to do. And so they actually, they said, you need to get in the pool, you need to get in the boxing ring, and you need to get in the weight room. Everything that they had him do took him out of the gym. Because sometimes it's... It's not the moment of decision on the court where it's happening. It's the hours of preparation before you get there that's seizing you. I think that's, that's this life of discipleship that Jesus is inviting us into. And in Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, this is what we see Jesus doing. In Mark 1, it says that he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting there. He's practicing solitude and silence. It says he would rise very early in the morning while it was still dark and he would depart over to desolate places and there he would pray. He went out by the sea. Any of you like to go to the beach? Jesus is constantly going to the beach. 
not to like lay out. And I don't think he was trying to get a suntan. He's like pulling back his robe. He's like, I don't want tan lines. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to be by the sea because he can connect with the Lord in an intimate way there. Even Jesus, as I mean, <laughs> you can't overstate how connected Jesus is to his Father. And yet, he practices his connection. It's an over and recurring rhythms of life. He would withdraw with his disciples to the sea, Mark 3. And people are constantly following. That's part of why. There's hurry, there's crowds, there's busyness. But Jesus is one step ahead, trying to get a moment of silence with his Father. Mark 4, let's go across the other side. They came across the other side of the sea. When Jesus crossed to get into the boat to the other side, he's, he's bouncing around, just trying to avoid the muchness and the manyness. In Mark 6, he's, he's worried about his disciples. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they went into the boat to get to a desolate place by themselves. He went to the lake to go find an island, to just be alone. But of course, the people run around. They meet him over there, and it's just like, does it ever stop? It did not for Jesus. Jesus had to find and make time to do this. And he says, come be with me. Come do what I'm doing. This is going to be a part of life. If it's a part of the life of a first century itinerant Jew, it's going to be a part of a life of somebody in the 21st century with smartphones and social media. This is what it would look like. Foster says, in the midst of exceedingly busy ministry, Jesus made a habit of withdrawing to the lonely place. So under this yoke of tutelage, of learning this way of Jesus, he actually says, you can have rest, but it's because of who he is. Um, go, go on, Michael. I, I love this. This invitation of this yoke. Remember, yoke is connecting you to someone. And it, it's connecting you to someone for like a greater mission or a greater cause. It, you're being linked here. And who are we being linked to? Doesn't Jesus make it pretty obvious? Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. I will give you my yoke, me. I, my. Seven times in just a couple of sentences, he's like, it's me. It's me. And I am better than anything you ever imagined. Because I am the one who can actually connect you with the Father. You, you have felt betrayal and separation in our relationship with God? Yes. We're the ones betraying, by the way, just for the record on that. Thanks, Rose. Um, but he says, I, I'm the one that can actually reconcile you there. I love this language that comes in from the Hebrews writer. He says, I want you to draw near. It's, it's like worship language, priest language. Draw near. Why? How can we draw near? He says, because we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. No, this high priest... He's became like us in all points so that we can approach the throne of grace boldly with confidence and we can find help and grace in our time of need. It's like Jesus has made a way, not for us to go to a temple in a far off place to approach a priest as long as we're part of the right people. He has made a way for all people to be reunited in a, in a union with God through himself and through his cross. Jesus has made the way back to God. He is the atoning sacrifice. That's the, the language of, of Jesus' friend John. He, he has created a fellowship with the Father and with the Son that we get to share into. A fellowship, though, he says, it's a participation. It's a presence. All right, Michael, go on. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Guys, at some point, we're going to do a series on gentle and lowly. And I have a book for everybody. <laughs> they, they were giving away copies of this 
really great book called Gentle and Lowly. Can I just share a few quotes from Dane Orland, the author? He says, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's 89 chapters. He says, but there's only one place where Jesus actually says about his heart, where he shares who he is at a heart level. In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down to the core of who he is, we're not told that he is austere and demanding. We're not told that he is exalted and dignified. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. There are no prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It's all he needs, indeed. It's, all he, it's the only thing he works with. Marilyn, I was thinking of you this week, not to single you out, but to single you out. The only thing it takes, you don't have to get your life in order. You don't have to figure everything out. All the things that have happened. I'm not just talking to Marilyn. But Marilyn, I feel this for you. The things that have happened that stick with you and that haunt you and that put you into cycles that you don't like, you don't have to figure those out. All you have to do is say, will you take me? And then Jesus can begin figuring those things out, but he begins by just washing them clean. The things that you have done because of the things done to you, he can erase and he can forgive. He can welcome you back into the Father. You don't have to figure it out. He is accessible. And he makes the Father accessible. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Go ahead, Michael. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I will give you rest. Rest is not the absence of labor. It's the presence of Jesus in the midst of it. Jesus isn't wanting lazy Christians. He is wanting to be with us as we press on into the mission of God and the advance of the kingdom. But he promises this easy yoke. But easy is, is not what it sounds like. It's the word kind. It's the word kind. You remember when Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be kind. Be kind. It looks like forgiveness. It looks like putting others above you. He says, that's what my yoke is. In the language of, of John 15 that Kelsey read, he says, I, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You have to remain or abide in me. He says, if you don't, if you don't bear fruit, I'm going to throw you into the fire. If you stay in me, though, I will prune you. I will work with you. I will help you to bear fruit. And the fruit that he's talking about in John 15, he says, is to love one another. It's this, it's this yoke that is kind. It's easy. It's loving. It's forgiving. It's a different way. It's the way of Jesus. And he says, and it is light. And it is light not because someone didn't have to carry it, but because Jesus has carried the weight of that, the yoke across his shoulders, and he carried it to Calvary. He, he, he literally carried his cross for us. And then he took on our sin at that cross 
And then he says, but it is light for you. That is the, the blessing of being yoked to Jesus. So what would it look like to, to appreciate the union that Christ has won for us through Calvary? It would look like practicing communion. The difference in union and communion. Union is this abiding reality. And communion is where you practice it. Union is the wedding. You're married. Communion is where you live as a married life. It's the difference between fathering a child and parenting a child. It's like, yeah, that's true, but this is what it looks like to practice it. Does that make sense? What would it look like to practice the presence of God? There's a, an old monastic monk named Brother Lawrence. Uh, he was a former soldier in the French army, I believe. And he wanted peace. He wanted the way of Jesus. And he's, he's converted to Christ and he gives up his life and he surrenders his old life of violence for the way of Jesus. And he becomes a dishwasher. And so he, he's writing letters and corresponds to people because he has found a way to connect with God in the mundane, ordinary things of life. And he says, when I wash dishes, it's as if I'm at the foot. He's a Catholic. He says, it's as if I'm the foot at the foot of the blessed sacrament itself. That Christ is here in in his midst. He's practicing the presence of God in the, the ordinary, mundane things of life. There, there are ways of doing this. As you study and as you change diapers and as you go to work and as you drive home, there, there can be this. You don't have to go to the place of the temple. You don't have to just say, I long to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon your face and to gaze upon your beauty. You can be with him because he is with you now. What would it look like to practice? Can I just give a few practical things and then, and then we'll close? All right, Michael. As we've said, with all of these pieces of the transforming graces, there's a, an embrace and a resist. Can I just talk about the embrace for, uh, rather the resist for just a second? What I mean is that spiritual breathing that Willard talked about, he said, when our, when our blood cells are filled up with carbon dioxide, we die. And so sometimes you have to exhale. And we have to do that with our schedules. With, with our lifestyles, with our hurry. He says, sometimes you just need to breathe out so that you can put the practice of the presence of God into that space that's already occupied by something else. There's a couple of practices that really help do that. One is silence. And silence and solitude kind of go hand in hand. You have to turn it down in order to kind of hear what might be going on. The still, small voice of the Lord is a real thing. Be still and know that I am God. You have to turn it down, get, get silent. And um, mamas especially, but families, um, people with smartphones, it's like, I, I live this in this world too, right? I'm not, I'm not coming down to you as somebody who lives on another planet where they don't have technology or they don't have noisy households. Um, <laughs> I'm right there with you. But we have to carve this out. And this is the way of Jesus, that he says, come and learn from me. The, the next one, though, is Sabbath. And if, if you're reading in Matthew 11, actually the next thing he talks about is Sabbath rest. He says, come and I will give you rest. And then they say, well, what kind of rest are you promising? Because you seem to be picking grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I do not advise Sabbath keeping as a way of fulfilling the law or a, a demand of, of legalism or anything like that. I encourage Sabbath as a space to create margin to be with God and to enjoy communing with him on a weekly basis. All right, ne next one. What I mean is daily and weekly rhythms where you embrace silence and solitude and you embrace rest. 
Jesus' brand of rest. So it can look like morning and evening, right? We've talked about that several times in the series. If this is your first time with us, I encourage you, can you try this? Try it. You don't have to have all the other stuff figured out. Just try to have a morning rhythm. Maybe start with 10 minutes. 10 minutes of silence and solitude, maybe with a Bible open so that you can kind of get some inspiration because our heads are going to be so busy and cluttered and bouncing around. It's like, I don't even know what to do in the silence. You can have like a centering verse or a centering prayer. One of my favorites is, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a good way to kind of get into being in his presence. Um, Maybe there's some other meaningful passage. Psalm 27 is a great place to go. You are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid? A daily morning rhythm, but also I would encourage you, if, if you've done the morning thing for a while, maybe evenings are maybe more your speed. You're not an early riser. Try an evening rhythm. Um, there's a practice called, it's the spiritual practice of examine from Ignatius of Loyola, but you could just call it highs and lows. <laughs> you know, what was good today? What was bad? What did I feel today? Lord, help me, help me know where you were when I felt the most intense emotions of my day. A lot of what we do is highs, lows, and then our kids like to do mediums. Those are funny things. I was talking to my spiritual director yesterday, and he says, I I love the question of, like, what did God do today that made you laugh? Because God is a God of joy and and happiness and laughter as well. So it doesn't have to sound overly spiritual, right? You don't have to call it examine from Ignatius of Loyola. You can just call it highs and lows. And it's, it's letting God kind of process with you what you felt today. And then giving that to God, and I guarantee he's going to do some stuff with it if you let him have it. Morning and evening is a wonderful time to just kind of slow down and be with God. Um, I have a reminder on my phone every day at noon. It just says pray. <laughs> so it's, it's not, I'm not, in, in the middle of my day, I'm not going to take as long as I do in the morning and evening. But it's just a kind of a quick reminder, oh, God is in this place too. I was talking with a friend. He said he was working on a project in the closet, and he said, at the end of the day, I had to realize I needed to apologize to God because I didn't invite you into any of this, and it showed. <laughs> you ever have those, those days? Daily, but then weekly. I'm so glad that you carved out space. Joel Fussell, it's your first time here. I've been praying that you would be here. Um, I, I would invite you back. Um, to be here as a week, weekly rhythm of worship. To carve out space and like, I'm, I'm going to stop from the hectic life that I live six days a week and I'm going to stop and rest and commune and bless. Stop, rest, commune, and bless. Worship together is absolutely a way of communing with God. It's such a profound way where we can give voice to one another's faith and, and sometimes faithlessness where by being surrounded by a community of people, sometimes your faith is what encourages us. The the Hebrews writer, again, he says, "I, I want you to draw near with full assurance of faith. He says, don't neglect to meet together as the habit of some, but we should encourage one another and stir up one another to love and to good works. He says, being together is a critical part of drawing near to God. A weekly rhythm of worship is so important. You're here. I know who I'm talking to. I'm so proud of you. You have made this a priority. This this may not be something that that feels normal. Some of you are like, is he going to call my name yet? (laughs) This is a good thing to do. It is worth it. God can be experienced in profound ways in this place. But he can also be experienced on that Monday morning 
that Monday at noon, in that Monday evening as well. All right, Michael. Last piece. And, and this is kind of just a word of encouragement. First um, John, it's a letter of Jesus' friend John. And he's writing to people, he says, who are in partnership and fellowship with God. You have fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, you have fellowship with us. There's this amazing thing that Jesus has created. But then he has this line later on in the letter where he says, he's talking about anxiety and fear, and he says, he says, perfect love cast out fear. And I just close by speaking to people who carry anxiety. And I'm not talking about PTSD. I'm not talking about grief. I'm, there's lots of forms of anxiety that they kind of fill our hearts and our minds. I'm talking about kind of more chronic versions of this, where it feels like I have to do or I should do, or if, if you know, the, the weight of anxi anxiety. Um, I believe the theory that I've heard um, that the pres our awareness of the presence of God and our awareness of anxiety occupy the same space. It's very difficult to be fully aware of the presence of God and fully aware of your anxiety and all those burdens. They occupy the same space. That's not to say God occupies the same space. God, the, the, the wind blows where it wishes. The, the Holy Spirit can, can work in you despite your awareness of him. He, if you're a believer, he's made you his spiritual oikos. You are his house all the time, even if you're not sure who's home, right? But sometimes it looks like slowing down and reminding yourselves that it doesn't all depend on you. Slowing down and remembering who you are connected to. The, the yoke that unites you with the person of Jesus. And it's not that your love is perfect or that you've been loved perfectly. I know you haven't. You've been hurt by people that love you. You've been hurt by people who failed to love you. But Jesus will never fail to love you. Perfect love cast out fear. He wants rest for our souls. He says, come to me. Can I pray for you? Would you stand up and I'll just close in prayer and then go pick up your kids. Oh Lord God, you are the vine dresser. In Christ, we know that you are the true vine. Would you prune your branches so that we can bear fruit? The fruit of your love in our hearts. The fruit of your love in our relationships. The fruit of your love in our communities. So that all may know who sent us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.